Raja Krishnamurthy is with us. He's the Democrat who is the congressman out in the northwest suburbs in the 8th Congressional District. Raj, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, Joe Biden put his signature on the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. But, uh, Raj, the Republicans say it's way too much money and an economic boom is coming anyway. What do you say to that? Well, golly gee, I kind of... uh defer to Chairman Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve, who basically said, you know, look, <clears throat> the economy needs additional stimulus. Uh, when asked exactly how much, he basically said, um, I don't know the exact right number. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said that the risks of doing too little outweigh the risks of doing too much. And I think in this particular case, you know, my constituents are hurting tremendously, not just the people whose unemployment insurance is going to expire uh, this Sunday, absent what we did this past week with the American Rescue Plan, but also the thousands of struggling businesses, um, the people who are um, hurting to even pay for necessities like food and medicines and putting a roof over their heads. So I think that this rescue plan um, is going to do a great deal to help them, as well as help um, you know the struggling communities in my district that are about to hike taxes or cut services or lay off first responders. And I think that uh, uh, this will help them immeasurably. And there are a couple of issues I think that are particularly important to your constituents out in the suburbs, which I don't think is in the bill, but ought to be next on the agenda, perhaps. That's SALT and canceling some some student debt. Uh, state and local taxes, Trump limited it to a 10% deduction on your income tax. Any chance that you Democrats will now move a bill and get it signed by Biden to expand that deduction? Possibly. I'm on the bill um, uh, basically doing that, and we have to see how uh, we can move it in this Congress. I think that another thing that uh, my constituents uh, bring up repeatedly is just uh, making sure that we can vaccinate all of our population. And this bill uh, provides uh, a lot of additional resources for vaccinations as well as testing, um, because at the end of the day, we got to get through this pandemic to fully recover and open up this economy uh, so that we can, you know, American can really get back to business again. And on canceling some student debt, Biden seems to support $10,000 of cancellation, but not more than that. Where are you on that? I actually think that um, we should consider doing more than that in return for potentially uh, service to the country, whether it's serving in the armed forces, whether it's serving in some other capacity, um, getting into those rural areas and those underserved communities and cities which desperately need help. You know, I think this is a time to heal. And I'm not just talking about healing uh, from our health care crisis or healing the economic crisis, but also knitting our country together, you know, based on those founding ideals of freedom and liberty and, and prosperity for everybody as well as equality for everyone. And I think getting our young people in the mix, uh, working with not-for-profits, getting in public service could be an essential component of uh, healing on all those fronts. 
Now, if they did that, how much higher would you want to take the canceled debt? Um, I think that there are different formulations of that. Um, I think that it would be basically paying off their debt through a form of service. But I think that the bigger issue here, Bill, is that this debt is really holding us down as a country. There's a whole generation of people who graduated around the time of the Great Recession, the last Great Recession, uh, in 2008-2009, who couldn't find jobs then, who had tremendous debt uh, at that point. Uh, finally landed a job once our economy started to recover, and then uh, suddenly find themselves with poor prospects because of the latest pandemic-induced recession. And I think we have to consider how do we help them while at the same time, you know, potentially finding ways for others who didn't necessarily um, go to college or have a four-year degree, get upskilled as well and get a great skills-based education or or vocational education, which I also feel passionate about because we have to make sure all forms of post-secondary education, regardless of the path, are high quality and everyone has a has access to it. Another big help would be incentives to bring jobs back from overseas. Yes, sir. Where is that on the, the Democrat agenda? Well, one of the big things that we've recognized during the pandemic is that we can't Um, outsource critical functions to places like China and others where, uh, you know, essentially we are uh, having to, uh, you know, ask for PPE. Um, And it's not, and I say ask, I use that word (laughs) advisedly because there was such a shortage of personal protective equipment and even some basic medicines that we almost had to ask a favor of other countries such as China and others to allow us the permission to buy it from them. And um, we can't be in that situation again, Bill. I think we have to uh, source those critical items here in the United States. We have to provide incentives for manufacturing them here. And we also have to, um, you know, make sure that um, we identify other problems in our supply chain, so to speak, for for different items from ventilators th- to uh, medicines to uh, other types of equipment crucial for our health security and our national security. And there's a ton of overseas jobs for customer service. How would we get those back? Well, um, you know, in a lot of areas uh, of our country, such as rural and underserved communities, we might be able to train people to um, – start to take these jobs. And that's where I think that upskilling that I was talking about with regard to career technical education may come into being. And and by the way, I think that um, in providing that upskilling for these young people, especially, or others, um, we will also um, help to reduce uh, some of the antisocial behavior that's found in some of these places. Um, we need to get people off the streets, Bill, and unfortunately, there's, a, there's been a, a large rise in hopelessness in a lot of these places induced by the pandemic. Um, and I think that has also contributed to um, other problems that we've seen, you know, that manifested themselves uh, during, during the year. Might it be worth it to give a company that does that a tax incentive to do so? I personally think so, yes. I think it makes a lot of sense to 
do whatever we can to incentivize companies, businesses, even uh, residential homeowners to locate themselves in underserved communities, whether they're in rural or urban areas. Imagine the kind of economic activity they could generate if we were to incentivize them to locate there. We've started doing that a little bit at the federal level through things called opportunity zones Mm -hmm. and other similar measures. And I was supportive of what um, Republican Senator Tim Scott um, ended up doing and got signed into law by President Trump. However, we've also learned that some of these opportunity zones um, have not been drawn properly um, and, 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 don't necessarily encompass all the areas that deserve to be in those opportunity zones. And so there need to be some reforms there, too. We're talking issues with Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of the 8th District. That's the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Congressman, I hear there's a very big infrastructure bill coming on the agenda. Can you tell us about it? I hope so. I hope there's a large infrastructure bill coming down the pike. It's long time coming. Lots of support on both sides of the aisle. Um, I think that if we can uh, somehow uh, make sure that we uh, bring this to the forefront of our agenda, I have a, I have a feeling it's going to pass um, because you know our economy is falling behind the Chinese economy, uh, even some European uh, economies because our infrastructure is so dilapidated uh, from roads to bridges to airports to ports to canals, locks and dams, and the rest. We've got to upgrade our infrastructure if we're going to upgrade our economic prospects. Now, that would require a new revenue source to retire new bonds. What do you like as a revenue source? Lots of people talk about the gas tax. There are different revenue sources being considered. Obviously, that's one of them. There are fees, uh, user fees. There's um, the possibility that certain types of infrastructure could uh, could be built using a public-private partnership model, um, although uh, that would be limited only to those types of uh, infrastructure that are heavily traveled um, and would be uh, something that could be pri- privately operated. But on the other hand, I think that there's, um, you know, a willingness now among Democrats and Republicans to kind of talk about a, you know, consensus type of solution that would generate revenue. Um, and I think that that's, that's, a, that's a welcome development. And I think Joe Biden will be, you know, the infrastructure president. I think this is something that's front and center on his agenda. Yeah, he's been saying, as he did this week, that uh, America is back to do uh, big, hard things, and I hope that's true. Yes, sir. Raj, Raj, what are heavy metals, and how did they end up in baby food? Yeah, it's not a rock group. Uh, Heavy metal metal such as lead, cadmium, arsenic, and and mercury uh, have been found in baby foods, because of an investigation that my uh, subcommittee that I chair in Congress uh, that we led. And and basically, it arises from not only naturally occurring types of metals that are found in certain agricultural products, but also because of certain pesticides, fertilizers, 
um, additives and industrial contamination that's in water and soil. And um, what we found is that, unfortunately, not only is there hundreds, if not thousands, of parts per billion of these dangerous, toxic heavy metals, but unfortunately, the FDA, under multiple presidents, Democrats and Republicans, has been completely uh, AWOL on this issue, or almost completely AWOL. And uh, because of that, we have a big problem. And so I'm introducing legislation to fix it. And how does it fix it? Um, by doing multiple things. One, by requiring the FDA to set standards for how much uh, toxic heavy metals can be present in any baby food and then ratcheting that down to zero over time, similar to what, what our counterparts in certain European countries have done. Secondly, uh, providing funding for uh, farmers to be able to um, basically grow some of this food that's uh, at the heart of baby foods. I'm talking about carrots, peas, sweet potatoes, rice, and so forth in a way that lessens uh, their uh, metallic content. And then um, uh, ma basically making it clear that um, we want to inform parents uh, of their choices and allowing them to make informed decisions about what baby foods uh, contain what content and, uh, you know, basically having an informational campaign so they can do the right thing by their children. We should talk about cyber attacks because you're on House Intelligence. My own view is uh, privacy in America really boils down to four words. You don't have any. Uh, <laughs> bring us up to date on what the ordinary man and woman can do to protect themselves from the Russians and all the other criminals out there hacking into our systems. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's a big problem, and what we learned from the recent solar winds attack is that, for instance, the Russians have figured out a way to attack uh, government infrastructure, but also um, private industry infrastructure by embedding malware in the source code of basically vendor software that those that those companies and the governments use. So in other words, they figured out how to not just attack those governmental computers directly, but to go through their vendors. And so now uh, recently we had a hearing on this and uh, I questioned uh, witnesses about what can we do to protect ourselves going forward. And um, what I can tell your listeners is that, first of all, I think that they should be extremely leery about um, phishing emails, which are on the rise, um, and not respond to any uh, emails that they don't recognize or people that uh, email them that they don't recognize. This is an incredibly um, fundamental concept that, unfortunately, a lot of our um, employees, even in the government, have not observed and have unfortunately, uh, open the door to attacks. The second thing is they should always have some type of software um, to uh, protect their uh, systems and their own computers uh, from uh, other types of attacks, uh, viruses, and so forth. And I think those would be a good start. Uh, and, of course, they should never give their passwords away and um, have passwords that are, you know, 
uh, unique and uh, tough to break. You're also on House Oversight and Government Operations, and of course that reminds me of January the 6th and the insurrection. What's the big move that's going to come out of Congress to try to prevent that in the future? Well, I think that this is something that's still being investigated, Bill. I I don't think there's been a final uh, decision on on everything that has to happen. But I can think of at least two things that that have to happen, among others. One, we have to bring to justice all those who are associated with the January 6th attacks. It's not just the people that were there um, who broke into the Capitol, but also people who might have planned or plotted or masterminded the attacks who weren't present in Washington that day. And uh, this is a large uh, law enforcement activity as we speak. The second is um, we have to protect the Capitol a lot better than we did. It didn't make any sense that our brave uh, Capitol police officers were completely um, outmanned uh, and outnumbered and just unable to hold back the hundreds, if not thousands, of people who stormed the Capitol that day. And um, that, was a, uh, that was poor planning, that was uh, poor uh, intelligence sharing, and of course it didn't make any sense that the National Guard were not called in in a timely way. And so that has to change going forward. Is the experience of visiting Capitol Hill by ordinary Americans, uh, tourists, is that going to change? It has to change, Bill. This is the, you know, I always say that the U.S. House of Representatives is the people's house, and yet the people are not allowed to access uh, the Capitol grounds. Uh, We are not allowed to have visitors. Um, We have 5,000 National Guard's troops with heavy weapons patrolling at all, all hours of day and night. Uh, with uh, high fences and razor wire surrounding the Capitol. So it feels like a fortress. And um, I think that one of the things that we have to do is how do we start to make it more accessible while at the same time protecting the Capitol. And I'm glad that General Honoré, who was the uh, chairman of this commission that Speaker Pelosi set up, um, to examine the problem, recognizes that, you know, we have to make the place accessible even at the same time that we protect it. Uh, we had a private briefing on, uh, I believe, Wednesday of this past week. I attended it, and he brought up some issues uh, that I think we have to take a close look at. I don't want to divulge them, but I think that um, you will see some uh, actions taken in that regard. Corruption by politicians persists here in Illinois. We just had another ex-state rep indicted along with his two kids. Raj, why does political corruption, why do they just keep stealing in spite of all the indictments? Unfortunately, you know, I, I, um, I helped to found the public integrity unit. That was the anti-corruption unit for the Illinois Attorney General's office. And this was during the Blagojevich years when it it feels like um, corruption in state contracts was so normalized that even certain white shoe firms uh, thought it was okay to participate. And I think that is the biggest problem we have in Illinois, which is that in some quarters, people think it's just okay to um, basically uh, profit at the public's expense, use your public office or 
position in government uh, to take from the till, so to speak. And I think um, long term, you know, we have to do a, a few things. One, we have to have real campaign finance reform where, um, you know, we can get some of the money out of politics. Two, we have to have greater transparency measures so we know exactly how our, our money is being spent um, and, and, and bringing transparency so that uh, people can't um, uh, easily, uh, you know, dole out contracts and spend money without someone looking over their shoulders, namely the taxpayers. Um, and then finally, you know, we 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 as um, uh, elected officials have to practice something called integrity, which we might learn in Sunday school or other faith traditions or uh, in, in in other ways, which means. You know, you have to do the right thing when people aren't looking, and we have to teach that to um, others, and we have to enforce it amongst ourselves, and um, that's just something that's basic that, unfortunately, sometimes is lacking. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> well, I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, we should be practicing one form of the golden rule in Illinois, unfortunately. Uh, the other form, other golden rule, uh, uh, kind of uh, dominates, which is he who ha- has the gold rules. And um, you know, I think that in Illinois, sometimes the powerful and the well-connected uh, get to determine the rules. And guess what? They favor them, and and those rules are somehow corruptly administered, and it just perpetuates a system where. Uh, they stay in power, and that's got to change. That's Rep. Raja Krishnamurthy. He's from the 8th District, the Democrat who represents many of those northwest suburbs. Raj, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you so much, Bill. Take care. After a break, our Connected to Chicago Roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. Time for the Roundtable, where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, who covers Washington. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long at the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hello there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, we used to say Chicago's the city that works, gang, but it uh, seems like this week it uh, does not work in a couple of big ways. For example, Heather, is, was all the confusion out at the United Center vaccination site, was that really necessary? Well, there was a whole mess of it, and it began after they opened the appointments for all Illinois residents over 65 and announced that all Illinois residents who who had an underlying health condition would be able to make an appointment for the United Center at 4 p.m. on Sunday. But 45 minutes before that crucial time, they changed the rules so that only residents of Chicago could register for a limited number of appointments at the United Center. And that has really touched off a firestorm because people in the suburbs uh, who thought they were going to be able to get a coveted appointment were not able to. And that has grown in the next couple of days as the city and the county have really restricted those appointments to people who live in uh, specific zip codes where COVID has taken a a tough toll. So particularly south and west side communities in Chicago 
and we will start to see that happen for residents of Cook County and particularly hard hit areas um, in the next several days and weeks. But a lot of people are very angry because they thought they were going to be able to get an appointment there and they were not able to. And nobody likes to be an elected official fielding calls from angry people who said wanting to know why they're cut out of, of this crucial, crucial source of vaccine. Greg, I see some congressmen have uh, sent a letter to FEMA blaming it for all of this. What's going to be the political impact of that? So this letter was, it was signed by almost all the members from the Chicago area, including uh, black members, uh, Latino members. And they say, hey, uh, uh, we have... We have equity concerns in suburban Cook County too, but they're they're being ignored. Um, uh, as, as, as Heather correctly said, this has set up a little bit of a firestorm um, uh, because it's it's real easy, I think, for people to look at political considerations in this and say, "Well, Mayor Lightfoot is just tank." trying to take care of people who could vote for her for mayor and doesn't care about people who live in suburban Cook County. But, the, but the, these congressmen are, are in fact saying, hey, our people have equity concerns, too. Uh, they're just as needy. Uh, why does somebody who happens to live in a zip code over here get priority over, over somebody of the same circumstances who lives in another zip code three miles away? It's a good point. Uh, J.B. Pritzker. Ray is up for re-election next year. Do you think this kind of confusion is going to have any impact on him? Well, it doesn't hurt. uh, There was a poll that came out this week um, that had him at just about as many favorables as he has uh, unfavorables. But um, polls are polls, and this is early. But the problem here is that uh, all the time in almost any kind of major rollout when you get down to the nitty-gritty of who is impacted when, where, and how, that is where the problems start coming up. It's the same kind of thing that's happening at the unemployment insurance office where they can't seem to get that smoothed out. So when you've got a bunch of brush fires that are happening out there, that doesn't help your overall popularity, and it's something that he's got to get under control. Greg, you were writing Friday about something else that made it appear Chicago is the city that doesn't work, and that's the CTA. Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been uh, commuting regularly downtown through all through all this and stuff uh, uh, on the bike when I can, but uh, on uh, on the CT when I can't. And uh, although. Although the CTA folks have been pretty good at keeping the system running despite all kinds of problems, and I think they deserve a huge pat on the back for that. The trains have been going, uh, the the buses have been going, even though 1,200 people, I'm told, in the CTA staff have have, have, have been infected with COVID. But the subways in particular, uh, the L, has gotten really kind of oogie. Um, The the homeless have kind of uh, claimed that turf there. Uh, at times you can't get on a train. There are two or three homeless people. They're all sprawled out. Uh, nobody enforces mask mandates. Uh, there's absolutely no Chicago police presence. Uh, the, the subway is is dirty and it's filthy. Um, if you're ever going to get re- downtown Chicago back on its feet and reopen all those empty office buildings. And if you're ever going to get people out to some of the new places that Mayor Lightfoot has been able to put together, uh, some of these uh, out in the neighborhoods, you've got to have a system that, that looks clean and safe, and people are going to have to want to ride it. And 
right now the CTA is providing the service, but it, it, but it certainly doesn't look very good, and, and they're just going to have to do a little bit better if the city is going to get back on its feet economically. Yeah, I was surprised to read about this because this is basic city housekeeping. Heather, were you surprised to hear this? I sure was. Um, and I should say, in all fairness, I haven't been on the L in, in almost exactly a year. But I have heard um, from friends who are still on the L, like Greg, that um, it, it's not great. And I think that this is one of those issues that the city is going to ha have to grapple with as we approach the near end of the pandemic, because Mayor Lightfoot said this week that she expects the summer of 2021 to resemble the summer of 2019 more than the summer of 2020. And if that is to be, the CTA absolutely has to be up and running and an inviting presence because otherwise either people won't come back into the city or they'll drive and the traffic is going to be horrendous and they will make that trip once and never again, which could have some pretty severe economic consequences for the city as it struggles to get back up on its feet after COVID. Yeah, Bill, if I could just add, I don't want to sure. beat up on, on public officials now. They've, they've had a heck of a, of a year, and uh, and uh, they've got all kinds of stuff on their plate, but there just has to be a minimum level of, of standards. I mean, I mean, you go into a train now, uh, There's sometimes there's people smoking, uh, not just tobacco. Uh, I've seen people urinate on the train. Um, you just can't. People are not going to use this system. We're not going to. Uh, downtown is not going to come back if that kind of thing is allowed to to continue. And it just, it just, I'd say this just isn't a high priority right now for the mayor and her team. Uh, the CTA has now gone seven months without having a chairman. That's when Terry Peterson quit at the August meeting. I mean, that alone ought to tell you that that fixing the CTA is not at the top of the list. Ray, what's your take on this? Well, I was reading Greg's column, and uh, it is not just your average day on the L, that's for sure. It's uh, <laughs> also something that is of concern, and, you know, it's got to be cleaned up whether uh, you want to improve the economy or not. It, 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 still, you can't be writing with filth, uh, you know, of people who are urinating on the train and you can't uh, expect other riders to enjoy their ride downtown if that's going on but we're also coming to the possibility here where we where we've got people going to the on the train like they used to to go to ball games and things like that so we got to get ready because uh, there are uh, changes in the wind and this needs to be swept up in some of those changes Lynn, out in Washington, where you are, has the Metro been having problems like this? Well, the ridership is down, and I have cautiously been on the train for three round trips, and it is so empty, I did not feel myself in jeopardy. I also took the effort. I went to the very first car. We have eight-car trains here, and no one seems to want to walk to an end, so I had cars to myself, but... The the ridership is way, way down. The mayor was using the phrase slush fund this week in admonishing aldermen and others not to come up with uh, some crazy ideas on how to spend the uh, COVID relief. Heather, what do you suppose she has in mind that we shouldn't do? 
Well, she wasn't specific, but this is clearly her gearing up and putting Alderman on notice that she is not going to back down on, you know, sharing what she thinks the right thing for the city to do with this money. And she has already said uh, to me and other reporters that her highest priority with that 1.8 or 1.9 billion the city is going to get is that her, she says that the city needs to avoid borrowing $1.7 billion as the city's 2021 budget called for. And they were going to pay very high interest rates, and they were actually going to go back to the era of scoop and toss, which is a terribly expensive way to operate a city um, on borrowed money. And that is not as she said, sexy. It's just, you know, it's not. But there are going to be a lot of aldermen who want to see uh, assistance for people so they can pay their rent, assistance for business. And there was also a hearing on Thursday uh, by the city council committee about whether the city should take about $50 million of that, so about 2% of that total, and use it to send direct cash payments as, as a pilot program for a universal basic income. Now, when I asked the mayor if that was something she would support, uh, she was decidedly cool to that suggestion. And this is going to be a big fight, as we just saw over the mayor's decision to take about $280 million from the, the March COVID relief package a year ago um, and use that to cover the cost of police salaries and, and benefits. So this is really just the opening salvo in, in this battle over how that $1.9 billion from Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan should, should be spent in Chicago. Yeah, Greg, does that uh, universal basic income sound like a handout? Well, you know, I'm sympathetic uh, with the alderman's desire to want to help people who are needy. There are a lot of people like that. But you also have to have a city government that pays its bills. I mean, remember, we just raised property taxes a ton in this town. Uh, our uh, pension funds are dramatically underfunded. There's, there's more property taxes coming. Um, uh, huge segments of, of our economy are still very tottering, like the like hotels and, and things of that nature, uh, restaurants. So the city's not getting the kind of normal tax revenue and then to pay for pay its bills. Um, this is probably not the time to begin brand new spending programs like the Socialist Caucus that the City Council wants to do, however good the intent is. Uh, you, have to, you have to take care of the fundamentals before you, before you can get to some of the extra stuff. And I think that's trying in, in her own way. That's the point that Mary is trying to make. I'm not sure she's terribly express it very clearly, but uh, you can't do everything at once. Uh, you've got to, you, you have to prioritize, and that's what I think she's trying to do and trying to say. Ray, any uh, guess on how the slush fund might be used by Chicago aldermen? <laughs> well, golly, <laughs> how much time do you have? I mean, it could be for, <laughs> for sidewalks or for roads, or it could be for social programs that they, that are near and dear to the district. But as you, as you know, I've covered the legislature, and when there's money that's up for grabs, it can get out of control fast. You know, Jack Benny statues, uh, all kinds of, uh, uh, of things that you can see money uh, going out the, w the window for. And what has happened in Springfield, and, it, and Greg touched on it here too, is that You've got to take control of your spending and your debt. 
And if you're spending and not paying attention to your debt, then it catches up to you in the end. And the city is in a very similar place like that. While many of the programs that are being suggested may have great merit, they still might not look favorable to the bottom line when you inject more debt into a situation. And Lena, I'm hearing on the Joe Biden agenda, probably next, but soon, is a big, very big infrastructure bill. What are you hearing about that? Well, I'm hearing that is true. They're trying to put it together. And the political problem will be whether or not you could truly make anything bipartisan and what it will take. And if you go big or go small, unlike the uh, COVID bill that just passed, they did it using a parliamentary technique where they only needed 50 votes to pass. This infrastructure bill will need 60 votes, and since there's only 50 Democrats, if it's 50-50, Vice President Harris votes in a tie, it looks like you will need some Republicans to get buy-in. So this will be very tough. One thing to watch for is if they move ahead in either eliminating this filibuster rule, which is what causes the need for 60 votes, or they decide to bring back earmarks, which in an infrastructure bill could well be the lubricant that greases a deal. Yeah, that may be the solution. Um, well, uh, let's talk about Tammy Duckworth, who jumped on Twitter this oh, week, yes. announced for re-election, and then the next day she was dropping an F-bomb on a right-wing uh, Fox host which I think does nothing but boost his ratings. But does anybody see a Republican who might challenge Tammy Duckworth? Or is Illinois purple enough, if not blue enough, to uh, dissuade any money going for a Republican? What do you think, uh, Greg? Um, difficult, not impossible. Uh, normally, for a Senate seat, you would, uh, you would look at uh, people in the congressional delegation who already know Washington House members. Uh, Adam Kissinger's name has certainly come up a lot lately, but uh, he says uh, he suggested that he's really not looking at that. Uh, Rodney Davis's name has come up, downstate congressman, but uh, he may be looking more at the, at the governor's race. Um, it's going to be tough, uh, if, if only because you need a, in this state you need a, a heck of a lot of money, and it's a blue state to start with. Um, but uh, we still have some time. What do you think, uh, Heather? Is there a Republican challenger who could come close to Duckworth? You know, it's interesting. I thought that there have already been several Republican candidates to announce for governor, including Darren Bailey, the state senator who has been the thorn in Pritzker's side throughout the pandemic about business restrictions. But nobody has in, has announced to take on Tammy Duckworth. And I think that that perhaps is an indication of what a strong political position that she appears to be in. I also think that it's going to be very hard to make a case that she does not deserve a second term um, with her sort of representing the, you know, uh, pro-military, protecting the truth, you know, and with her life story, uh, she was a formidable candidate the last time around. She now has, you know, a full six-year term under her belt that she can point to. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. But I know we're all rooting for a, a, a fun race to cover, uh, regardless of who ends up being on the ballot. Lynn, what's the thinking out in Washington on Duckworth? Uh, that she uh, will be very, very tough to beat. As we're discussing, you can't beat someone with no one. Uh, she has a running start. 
$2.6 million cash on hand balance as of December 31. Raising federal money is hard because it's limited. You can't do uh, mega donations. And just think, even if there is a Republican out there, the only ones that have federal money stockpiled would be the five members of the Illinois congressional delegation, and none of them, including Adam Kinzinger, seem really inclined to, right now to run for Senate. So, you know, she's seen it's a, it's a blue state, and when the handicappers look at the prognosis in 2022 for the moment, Tammy's in the safe column. That's Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Thanks to her, also to Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Up next, Lauren Cohn. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Illinois' unemployment rate has dropped and some rules have changed. Joining me is IDES Director Kristen Richards. Thanks for being here. Oh, good morning, Lauren. Thank you. What is Illinois' unemployment rate right now? You know, we continue to see um, areas, uh, you know, tied to uh, the entertainment sectors, um, you know, the service economy, um, of course, you know, restaurants uh, that have all been impacted by this pandemic nationwide. How have the federal rules changed recently? Federal rules uh, have have uh, have changed with regard to the high unemployment period. Illinois is a state that participates in a federal state program that allows for extra benefit weeks to come into play during periods of increased unemployment. Uh, Lauren, there are two tiers to this. The first is known as standard extended benefits, which provides for 13 additional weeks of unemployment insurance benefits. And the second, known as a high unemployment period, provides for seven more weeks of benefits for a total of 20 weeks. In Illinois, the high unemployment period, again, this period of time where an additional seven weeks of benefits were available, extended from July 5th, 2020 to February 21st, 2021. The United States Department of Labor made the determination that the high unemployment period ended at this time. Uh, so again, the extent to which these added benefit weeks are available is tied to that state's unemployment rate. It's a determine, uh, determination made by the USDOL and it has the effect of transitioning claimants that were uh, on those extended benefit high unemployment period weeks back to other programs or seeking uh, new relief through this pending new federal legislation. So as we're waiting for this nearly $2 trillion relief package uh, to be passed, which you know could happen at any time, that could translate to $300 extra federal um, money for people in the state. Are you expecting anything else or this to be much needed relief to the people of Illinois? You're right, Lauren. This bill could continue that supplemental wage assistance that was a component of the original CARES Act uh, last spring and then was a component of the Continued Assistance Act that was signed into law on December 27th. Um, this uh, continued uh, wage supplemental assistance is available to any claimant who has at least uh, $1 of a weekly benefit allowance. And either the regular UI programs, uh, PEUC, um, which is extended weeks of benefits for individuals on regular UI, or for pandemic unemployment assistance claimants. Um, so again, we see that as a component of the bill that as of today, Tuesday, March 9th is pending uh, before the uh, United States House of Representatives and we are hopeful that that is a component of what is finally passed and signed into law by President Biden. 
And just finally, you know, I was a victim of someone stealing my identity and filing a claim, you know, for unemployment and had to deal with that. And I know you had overloaded with the system. Um, are, is it operating better now for folks who are trying to get on and claim benefits? Yeah, Lauren, it is. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that you actually raised that. Illinois, much like states across the country, have been uh, victims of an international crime ring um, arising from stolen identities, stolen uh, and access through previous large-scale data breaches like Experian, uh, for excuse me, Equifax, for example, which exposed um, over 150 million, I believe, um, uh, you know, pieces of, of PII, personally identifying information on the dark web. So bad actors, criminals have used this information to file for benefits nationwide. States are working together to share resources, uh, share ideas to stop this type of activity at the front door. Um, if anyone receives a UI finding letter or um, an indication that a fraudster has filed for benefits in their name, please visit the agency's webpage, report it to the agency. You will see a link to identity theft and fraud reporting. Um, follow the resources that are outlined there. Um, but again, you know, we are seeing um, improvements and just tied to our efforts to really um, stop that criminal activity from impacting our systems. All right, IDES Director Kristen Richards, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago.